Happy New Year's, listeners, and welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'd like to remind you we have a toll-free number, 1-855-625-8610. You can call and leave a message for the podcast with suggestions, comments, ideas for future episodes, anything you would like. This is brought to you by lifeonrecord.com. They're a great product. They give you a toll-free number for special occasions where you'd like to celebrate maybe an anniversary, birthday, graduation. People can call in and leave a message, and then you can either have them record those messages onto a CD and give the CD as a gift, or you can have them record it on a memory stick, and they will send you a little player that sounds great, uh, has great speakers. If you would like to check them out, their website is www.lifeonrecord.com. During this episode, I'm going to read some writings by different people that occurred at the time that these incidents were going on. As I read them, I'd like you to try to guess as to what year these things were written. Uh, I found some of them pretty amazing because they apply to today. At the end of each reading, I will give you the information on when it was written, by whom. Some of these are newspaper articles, part of our excerpts from books, and uh, even speeches. Of course, there is no prize for guessing right, but I thought it would be fun just to kind of play along and see if you can get the time frame. So, on with the episode. Now, gentlemen, I want to say a few words in relation to the labor question which is really the controversy involved in this case, because that is all there is of it. Back of all this prosecution is the effort on the part of George M. Payne to wipe these labor organizations out of existence, and you know it. That's all there is of it. In many well-ordered penitentiaries outside of Oshkosh, they have a role that people cannot converse at all. And the reason is that they may not conspire. And down in the dark coal mines in the anthrite regions of Pennsylvania, where those human moles burrow in the earth for the benefit of the great monstrous greedy corporations that are corrupting the lifeblood of the nation, there they work, men in chain gangs, and put an Italian, an American, a German, and a Bohemian together so they cannot understand each other when they speak, so that they may not combine and conspire, because in combination alone is strength. They do this, gentlemen of the jury, so that each one of those tiny atoms, each poor laborer with his little family, perhaps around him, working for a dollar a day or eighty cents a day, is bound to compete with the combination of men. With all the wealth that all their lives can create, on one hand, these powerful interests are organized thoroughly, completely, and they act together. And they turn to those poor slaves whose liberty they take and say to them, We will consult with you, but come alone to our office, and then we will talk. They say this because they wish to meet the weak and puny and helpless single individual with the great and powerful wealth and strength of their mighty corporations. 
and that is what Payne said. I would not answer the letter because it came from a labor organization. I did not know who it was. I will meet my men alone and talk with them. There are only two parties to a contract, the employer and the employed. Yes, gentlemen, they would meet their men alone. Fie on you for hypocrites and cowards who would combine every manufacturer in the city of Oshkosh not into a union but into an association. A body of employers living from the unpaid labor of the poor is an association. A body of their slaves is a labor union. George M. Payne says, I will not meet your union. I will not meet your committee. If one of you has anything to say, come to me alone and talk. And they did go alone. And what did they get? Gentlemen, what did they get? This was the beginning of the strike. It was not the speech of Thomas I kid, all the orators on earth could never bring dissatisfaction and a riot where justice rules. And all the hired lawyers on earth can never keep down the seething, boiling sea of discontent that is based on sin and crime and wrong. There was another man who worked in Payne's mill, and he said, I want a raise. And the boss answered, well, you get out of here or I'll give you a raise in the pants. What beautiful gentlemen these are. Won't it be a pleasure, gentlemen, of the jury just to accommodate them by passing out a verdict of guilty? This is the way they want to be met, simply and alone. After these men have toiled all these years and are growing old in their, their business and their service, they are kicked aside like dogs. Mark this, gentlemen. No one has disputed the statements or any other and they could not dispute them. They are absolutely true. This is the way the laboring men of Oshkosh were treated by the employers who had waxed great and rich at their expense. And you are asked to cure the discontent by sending kids to jail. Gentlemen, let me ask you, do you suppose that while George M. Payne pays a dollar and a quarter a day for skilled labor, that there are jails enough on earth to hold the criminals who will rise in rebellion against such conditions? Aye, gentlemen, if the jails could have put down insurrection and rebellion, then you and I would not be living in America today. If the jails and the penitentiaries and the scaffold could have strangled and wiped out rebellion and riot and insurrection, there would have been no America republic for us to protect and uphold. You gentlemen who wish to bring back the good old days of the past, you gentlemen with all your power and your wealth cannot crush discontent and unrest from the hearts of men. Boy, does that sound familiar? This was an excerpt from Clarence Darrow, Argument of Clarence S. Darrow in the case of the state of Wisconsin versus Toast I. Kidd in 1900. I'll give you a little explanation of what was going on and what this is all about. When people of the late 19th and early 20th centuries discussed the labor question, they were debating the best way to convince working people to accept the harsh conditions created by industrialization. Politicians business people, journalists, almost everyone in American society considered how to address the concerns of an increasingly restless working class. More often than not, 
American employers look to tighten control over employees rather than to change the harsh conditions they faced. When the Woodworkers International Union organized a strike against the Payne Lumber Company of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, company president George M. Payne turned to state authorities for help. Under Wisconsin law, they charged the general secretary of the National Union's Thomas I. Kidd and two local workers with conducting a criminal conspiracy to hurt Payne's business. Kidd and his co-defendants turned to the famed criminal defense attorney Clarence Darrow for help. Darrow, who had made his reputation defending American Railway Union President Eugene B. Debs after the infamous Pullman strike of 1894, turned the case into an indictment of the excuses of the American capitalist system. In his summary for the jury, Darrow tried to create sympathy for the defendants by explaining the difficult circumstances that led working people to join unions. The tactic worked. Payne and his co-defendants were acquitted. The next bit of reading is an article from Stockton, not the real name, on Wednesday, February 12th. Well, I will say the 10-hour day turn is enormously easier than the 12-hour night shift, but when began Monday morning immediately after a week of night work totaling 87 hours, we did 17 hours up to Sunday noon. It is not particularly conducive to an enthusiastic picture of life in general. A hot bath and clean clothes after taking off unbelievably dirty and sweaty working togs and shaking them out of the window. Shoveling up soot at the bottom of a hot, drafty chimney is hot and dirty. Does marvelous to set you up sufficiently to eat supper ravenously, but shortly after that you again feel as though it might be well to go to bed to get ready for more labor, or else try a movie or some other form of passing time removed as far as possible from both mental and physical effort. If this town were asked to put its views into words, it would ponder hardly a moment before condensing it into three words. What the hell? From top to bottom, that seems the general formula and prescription is, I'm sure, only the result, or at least the symptom, of the general overwork. The gang bosses, at least those of the labor gangs, seem to be the worst examples of what-the-hell philosophy. Of course, no question is apparently ever asked regarding any matter whatsoever in the plant except in the name of the devil's abode. But our bosses can put into it an amount of heat and steam which makes it really terrifying to the tired worker who perhaps took 10 or 15 more minutes than positively necessary to catch drink water, as those bosses would say in their broken English, or who sat down because no boss gave him any orders at the moment. But what the hell can come from anything whatever very often from the foreman's own failure to give proper instructions. Throw those bricks off the track over there. Everybody throws bricks in the general direction of the boss's fingers. Fifteen minutes later, boss returns. What the hell? Why do you throw bricks over the damn ventilation? No can work furnace. Me tell you, throw bricks over there. 
I presume the bosses are quite as tired as the rest of us because they spend just as many hours in the plant as we do, though they seldom touch shovel, bar, brick, and are supposed to worry about getting the job done, which last is the very last thing any of us under them ever worry about, unless it's an especially easy job when whispers go around. Just fine job. Take easy. Maybe make last all day. But don't get the idea that the average labor boss really does any head work or lets anybody else do it. Today, six or eight of us were taking the very heavy checker brick out of one of the checker chambers, our large rooms under the floor of the furnace, and so on a level with the cinder pit. Here the bricks are laid at right angles to each other with square air spaces in between like checkerboards. The great roomful of square-set fire brick thus serves to catch and retain the heat from the air and smoke passing through it from furnace on the way to the stack in order to give it back to the cold air from outside, which enters the furnace during every alternate half hour or so when the draft is reversed by the first or second helpers in charge. That alternate direction of the draft through alternate sets of the checkers enables the regenerating furnace to keep getting hotter and hotter till the charge of metals is melted. The carbon brought to the right proportion and the still is made. Another dozen or more of us were tossing these bricks from man to man till they were piled up high against the wall of the building, the soot having dropped off them meanwhile. At the same time, an Indian from Mexico, high up on practically the same pile, was tossing them down via an equally long line of men into the next checker chamber of the same furnace. When I diplomatically suggested that the piling up seemed unnecessary, the answer, of course, was, what the hell? Later, the piling was stopped and a great long line of about ten men pit brick from one to another, needlessly for a distance of 30 feet till I lost my temper, and the boss finally arranged a line of about 10 feet, whereby the bricks came from one chamber and went back into the other with a saving of about eight minutes' time. The men, of course, get the feeling that their work is never done. They have not the slightest interest in what it means or how it affects the operation of the mill around them because... I will say, nobody tries very hard to give it to them. It is all just a matter of doing as little work as the boss will allow. Last week, I tried to get the good notice of the different overseers by sticking close to my knitting. The bunch, of course, discouraged it. What the hell? Lots of time, and the bosses noticed me only when, after a long turn of work, I rested a moment. Their notice was the usual. Hey there, what the hell do you think this sleeping place? Not always is this query put in a mean way, but it simply expresses complete lack of effort to secure interest or to give instruction. The only thing in the world these boys have to give or are asked to give is their physical strength. They are hardly to be blamed if they try to guard their only capital by as many breathing spells and a slow motion as the boss will stand for. Here's an example in physical arithmetic. From Monday evening to Monday evening, on night turn, a man here works 87 out of the week's 168 hours. 
If the remaining 81 he sleeps at 7 hours a day, total of 49, eats not over 10, walks or travels in a street, say 10, dresses, shaves, tends furnace, undresses, winds alarm clock, and gets occasional drink, say 8, what does he think the rest of the time during all those remaining four hours. To save turning over to the end of the book, I'll slip anybody the answer. What the hell? This was written by Whitting Williams. The article was entitled, Endures Long Hours Working in a Steel Mill, written in 1921. With the advent of industrialization, American workers increasingly endured long shifts, sometimes 12 to 14 hours per day, are risked losing their jobs. Indeed, those workers, unwilling to accept such long workdays, were easily replaced by other desperate workers. Therefore, for much of the late 19th century, many workers cared more about gaining shorter hours, gaining higher wages. In the steel industry, the 12-hour day became commonplace during the 1880s, about the same time that managers eliminated unions from the steel mill trade. Although many industries abandoned the 12-hour day after World War I, it continued in the steel industry until 1923 because industry executives believed that giving it up would prove to be too costly. Whitting Williams, a personal director at a specialty steel company, gave up his position to understand work from labor's point of view. Here in a book he wrote about his experience, he describes what it was like to work the 12-hour day at an unnamed steel mill. This was an excerpt from Whitting Williams' What's on the Worker's Mind, New York, Charles Scribner's Sons, 1921. The next bit of reading comes from a pamphlet called Sabotage the Conscious Withdrawal of the Worker's Industrial Efficiency. I'm not going to attempt to justify sabotage on any moral ground. If the workers consider that sabotage is necessary, that in itself makes sabotage moral. Its necessity is its excuse for existence. And for us to discuss the morality of sabotage would be as absurd as to discuss the morality of the strike or the morality of the class struggle itself. In order to understand sabotage, or to accept it at all, it is necessary to accept the concept of the class struggle. If you believe that between the workers on the one side and their employers on the other there is peace, there is harmony such as exists between brothers, and that consequently whatever strikes and lockouts occur are simply family squabbles, if you believe that a point can be reached whereby the employer can get enough and the worker can get enough, a point of amicable adjustment of industrial warfare and economic distribution, then there is no justification and no explanation of sabotage intelligible to you. Sabotage is one weapon in the arsenal of labor to fight its side of the class struggle. Labor realizes, as it becomes more intelligent, that it must have power in order to accomplish anything that neither appeals for sympathy nor abstract rights will make for better condition. For instance, take the industrial establishment such as a silk mill where men and women and little children work 10 hours a day for an average wage of between 6 and $7 a week. Could any of them 
or a committee representing the whole hoped to induce the employer to give better conditions by appealing to his sympathy, by telling him of the misery, the hardship, and the poverty of their lives? Or could they do it better by appealing to his sense of justice? Suppose that an individual working man or woman went to an employer and said, I make in my capacity as wage worker in this factory so many dollars worth of wealth every day and justify demands that you give me at least half, the employer would probably have him removed to the nearest lunatic asylum. He would consider him too dangerous a criminal to let loose on the community. It is neither sympathy nor justice that makes an appeal to the employer, but it's power. If a committee can go to the employer with the ultimatum, we represent all the men and women in this shop. They are organized in a union as you are organized in a manufacturer's association. They have met and formulated in that union a demand better hours and wages, and they are not going to work one day longer unless they get it. In other words, they have withdrawn their power as wealth producers from your plant, and they are going to coerce you by this withdrawal of their power into granting their demands. That sort of ultimatum served upon an employer usually meets with an entirely different response, and if the union is strongly enough organized, and they are able to make good their threat, they usually accomplish what tears and pleadings never could have accomplished. We believe that the class struggle existing in society is expressed in the economic power of the masters on the one side and the growing economic power of the workers on the other side. Meeting in open battle now and again, but meeting in continual daily conflict over which shall have the largest share of labor's product and the ultimate ownership of the means of life. The employer wants long hours. The intelligent working man wants short hours. The employer wants low wages, and the intelligent working man wants high wages. The employer is not concerned with the sanitary conditions in the mill. He is concerned only with keeping cost of production at a minimum. The intelligent working man is concerned, cost or no cost, with having ventilation sanitation, and lighting that will be conducive to his physical welfare. Sabotage is to this class struggle what the guerrilla warfare is to the battle. The strike is the open battle of the class struggle. Sabotage is the guerrilla warfare, the day-to-day -day warfare between two opposing classes. Sabotage means primarily the withdrawal of efficiency Sabotage means either to slacken up and interfere with the quantity or to botch in your skill and interfere with the quality of capitalist production or to give poor service. Sabotage is not physical violence. Sabotage is an internal industrial process. It is something that is fought out within four walls of the shop. And these three forms of sabotage to affect quality, the quantity, and the service are aimed at affecting the profit of the employer. Sabotage is a means of striking at the employer's profit for the purpose of forcing him into granting certain conditions. Even as working men strike for the same purpose of coercing him, it is simply another form of coercion. This was a pamphlet created by the IWW Publishing Bureau in October 1916 by Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. 
Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was one of the founding members of the Industrial Workers of the World. Her nickname, the Rebel Girl, was a sign of the important role she played in IWW actions throughout the United States in the years leading up to World War I. The IWW primarily organized among the most exploited workers in the country, such as the immigrant mill workers of Massachusetts or the primarily Mexican copper miners of Arizona. The obstacles of working with such powerless constituencies prompted the Wobblies to develop a series of strategies which most unions never even considered. In this excerpt from an official IWW pamphlet, she wrote, Flynn explains why sabotaging the means of production is the logical extension of more conventional labor struggles. This podcast has been brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. You can reach them uh, by viewing our show notes, and you can reach us um, by viewing the show notes. We Our websites are located there, and so are our contact information, along with the toll-free number, email addresses. Feel free to contact us, and this will wrap this one up. Thanks for listening.